Hello and welcome to another edition of Podcast 1201. I am Callum Roper and today I am joined by Ollie Woolwyn. Hello everyone. I'm joined by Bradley Allsop. Hi folks. And I'm joined by Councillor Callum Watt. Good afternoon, Callum. And good afternoon to everyone listening. So we have quite a busy couple of weeks of politics to be covering. We haven't had a podcast in a while and a lot has happened. We'll be kicking off with the Batley and Spen by-election. A couple of us were fortunate enough to get out there and campaign for Kim um, in what was a Labour victory, a very close Labour victory in that West Yorkshire seat. But we'll be talking about the by-election, the results and what that means for the Labour Party going forward. From there, we'll also be talking about the latest updates on COVID-19. We are rapidly approaching the 19th of July date where we're given our final Freedom Day. Boris Johnson the other day saying that we're definitely going ahead with this. Uh, The new Health Secretary, we'll get into that later, has also said that we are going ahead with this, ploughing on with opening up the country. So we're going to talk about the numbers, we're going to talk about the so-called Freedom Day, and we're going to be speaking about exactly what impact this is going to have going forward. And then finally, we're going to be speaking about Sajid Javid. Uh, We're going to be speaking about his appointment from there, Um, the sacking or resignation of Matt Hancock following a scandal, and what that means for the NHS going forward. And one final thing we're going to talk about, Callum's going to lead us on a discussion about the Unite ballots dropping. The ballots have dropped, we've had people pull out of the race there uh, as the left seeks to consolidate itself in the face of Gerard Coyne and the right of the Labour movement. So we'll be talking about that uh, at the end of the podcast. So uh, get ready for that. We've got a lot to get through, but we'll kick off with Batley and Spen. So the results of the uh, by-election were very close indeed. Uh, Labour holding on to the seat. Uh, Kim Ledbetter becoming the MP for Batley and Spen, the uh, sister of Joe Cox, um, who was very tragically and awfully uh, assassinated in that seat during the Brexit uh, referendum. Uh, Kim Ledbetter getting 35.3% of the vote. The Conservative candidate, Ryan Stevenson, getting 34.4% of the vote. And in third place, we had George Galloway and the Workers' Party of Great Britain getting 21.9% of the vote. Now, this uh, this by-election was, was particular in, particularly interesting given, the um, firstly, the result earlier in the year in Hartlepool. We remember that great loss for... Labour, the Conservatives taking that uh, in what was a, an appalling result. Um, we, many of us feeling that perhaps we may lose Batley and Spen as well. The uh, the mood in the community was one of, of felt like they'd been left behind by Labour, very much echoing the mood in Hartlepool. But there was another di- dynamic in the community that the Workers' Party and George Galloway in particular were looking to... Um, I suppose, tap into. So there was very much issues around Palestine coming up on the doorstep. Um, On polling day itself, we had a group of people um, come up and heckle us about the the conflicts in the Middle East and the Labour Party's involvement in that, namely the uh, illegal war in Iraq. 
Um, obviously, at the time, I think I was five years old when we went into Iraq. Nothing to do with me or the activists I was with, nor Kim Ledbetter, nor Keir Starmer, for that fact. But it was something that was hot on the doorsteps, and people were very passionate about it. Um, throughout the campaign, um, in, in light of that, there was Labour activists that were attacked um, by other activists, um, allegedly from George, George Galloway's party, Obviously, they refute that and say that there was um, no such action taken by their activists. Um, and it was a real toxic campaign. There was a real mood of, of very much suspicion. There was a lot of hatred. There was a lot of distrust of, of the political uh, elite, if you like, being that being the Labour Party, the political establishment in the area. Um, and it was a difficult one. And as we see, Labour only just held out there. Labour only just held out there with uh, under under one percent in it between Labour and the Conservatives in what is historically considered quite a safe seat for the Labour Party. Now, we know there's no such thing as a safe seat anymore. We know that there's no such thing as a safe seat for the Labour Party, nor the Conservatives following um, Chesham and Amersham. And obviously, by-elections, you've got to take with a pinch of salt. But Lessons have to be learned, don't they? Uh, Callum, I'm keen to get your take on the uh, by-election as you were another person that was out on the doorsteps. Yes, I did go to uh, Batley and Spen. Uh, it wasn't, it, it's on the surface in a way, um, it wasn't that unusual of an experience. Um, going round, knocking on doors, most people weren't talking about Palestine as people uh, often mentioned. Uh, however, I think that it's obvious that it was still an issue. There were um, there were many, I, I would say, Muslim voters um, who were a little bit shy uh, to answer, and these were people who were down as Labour Party supporters in the past. Um, notably, there was even a woman who was wearing a council outfit. You know, so that I, I believe they were an employee of the local Labour-run authority, um, and they were very reluctant to to give me an answer as to how they were voting. Now, obviously, that's their right, um, but I think that that collectively uh, was quite notable, and I think that's that's pretty consistent with what the result was in the end. I think in the end, it was. Uh, I think it's important to say a triumph for for Kim Leb. Led Beta rather uh, personally, uh, you know, she was an excellent candidate, uh, excellent local candidate, and this was something we were emphasising people throughout the campaign that she was really the only serious local candidate that was sixteen on the ballot, of course. Um, and uh, it was interesting as well that on her leaflets she really talked about her local credentials and her and her personal abilities. Um, and made very little mention of the Labour Party or, or indeed Keir Starmer. Um, and I think that's notable and, and really sad in a way. Um, when it comes to... George Galloway thought that he could win this election just by talking about foreign policy. And obviously that's not, 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 not the case. Um, and he did make it pretty toxic. Uh, that's uh, pretty obvious. Um, he didn't succeed. 
But I think from I think this election should be a wake up call for the Labour Party, and it's interesting that you mentioned the the line between Palestine and what happened in Iraq, because of course uh, Britain's involvement in the Iraq War was done with a, a Labour government under Tony Blair, uh, and as an example of how uh, even a, a, a party which uh, presents itself as progressive is progressive, like ours, um, can is capable of making serious errors of judgment, shall we say, um, on on matters of uh, foreign policy. Um, and the thing about, the, and the contemporary example of that, of course, is Palestine and, and failing to uh, properly condemn the actions of Israel in that area. Um, and it just strikes me as very unnecessary. I mean, why not? We pulled together a really successful electoral coalition uh, in 2017, and these are our core supporters, and you're alienating them really for for no particular reason. I mean, one of the... It should be easy for Keir Starmer as an upstanding former barrister you know, member of the establishment in many ways, uh, God and knighthood, that sort of thing, to stand up and, and say we we believe in international human rights and self-determination um, and so on and so forth. And and that's it. That's, that's all they need to do. Um, but he seems to find that quite difficult and it's a little bit frustrating uh, to see the I think some of that arrogance kind of was exemplified by uh, an anonymous party staffer who was reported on by Owen Jones. Owen Jones brought the quote to everyone's attention. Um, this, uh, well, it said a source close to Keir Starmer, so perhaps it wasn't a staffer, but um, they said that uh, they had basically built a new coalition over the course of six weeks uh, lost the Muslim vote over Palestine and gay rights and gained back some Tory supporters from 2019. Bear in mind, by the way, that the, the swing from the Tories to Labour in this by-election uh, can only have been a maximum of 1.6%. That's how much the Tory vote dropped by. So for all realistic calculations, the Tory vote actually held up um, so that part it probably isn't true. Obviously, we don't know where votes really go to in in uh, these elections because it's a secret ballot. It's a fair assumption that really Labour's actions didn't have that much of an impact on the Tory vote. And then, of course, smearing um, the the um, Muslim voters by saying that they have been alienated on gay rights. Well, it's also completely untrue because, of course, Muslim voters have been eighty percent Labour for years, decades, um, as the Labour Party's position on LGBT rights has been improving. So um, it's just ingenuous nonsense um, and, and actually quite sinister, I think, to, to try and uh, frame the election in that way. Um, I, think, and I, I, think it's more, I think it's more than that, Callum. Yeah. I think actually mm. some, of, some of the stuff that's been said um, around the Muslim mm. and LGBT rights, it, I think I think it's racist to be honest. Um, if could you imagine people saying that about any other minority community in the UK, um, it it would rightly be called out as as discrimination, and I, I think that's what it was at times. And it, like you say, you know, this is quite an important part of 
if it set aside any morals for a second, you know, any, any sort of morality, and a pure electoral calculus, it it's you know the, the Muslim vote for a long time has been a, a strong part of of Labour's success electorally. So it's electorally stupid as well as you know sort of morally bankrupt. Yeah, no, you're 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 quite right. Perhaps I'm being too kind. Um, yes, it's uh, it, it's uh, it's, uh, it's dog whistling, basically, isn't it? Um, or, or or perhaps not even that because it's not that subtle. Um, and yes, uh, completely unnecessary. My, my hope, uh, in a way, this the election results should be the best possible result in a way um, strategically because, of course, uh, Batley and Spen have now got a, a very good local Labour MP um, and that is objectively a good thing for their citizens. Um, but the close result should be a wake-up call to the leadership to change direction, maybe get rid of some of these people um, that, are, that, that have this completely batshit um outlook on on, on the electorate um as, as bradley just described um and really start doing what keir starmer was elected to do when he became leader which was presenting an alternative economic vision for the country in a more polished and uh, and, and professional way that was his pitch uh, uh, to be corbynite but better than corbyn um I don't. I, th- I. The trouble is, I think that as this, these tweets are evidence of, uh, they see this by-election as validation. And I think if nothing is changed, we've got conference coming up in September. Um, if nothing is changed, our current trajectory is leading towards uh, continued electoral uh, decline in local elections and a disaster in our general elections. And I think people need to kind of wake up to that. Yeah, and I'm I'm keen to to um, explore further that that whole Keir Starmer <coughs> narrative that we're seeing because obviously George Galloway plastered around Batley and Spen had uh, Keir Starmer out uh, posters with pictures of him raising his fists and stuff like he's the uh, I think it, at times he was picturing himself as the true uh, Labour man if you like we all know that's nonsense here. Um, but that was the sort of angle he was going for. It was very much saying that the Labour Party is uh, incapable now of representing working people. And I think to an extent that's that's actually true, certainly in some aspects. But the difficulty is, I think, for us now is, is how do we distill the different moods and the different narratives that were coming out of this um, this by-election because obviously there's the false narratives that it was uh, um, a, a backwards community that didn't share uh, progressive Labour values. I think that that's rubbish and, and both Bradley and Callum have, have rightly pointed that out that that's actually that's racist, that's dog whistle or, or it's worse than that. So it's not that. Obviously the foreign policy we've spoken about, that's something um, that's, that's important. But this Keir Starmer um, narrative is something else I want to dig into, and and Ollie, what was your take on that? Is has uh, George Galloway got a point in a sense that uh, Keir Starmer is the problem for the Labour Party? Well, I have a lot of problems with with uh, George Galloway. I, I don't think um, we should be under any illusions that he's um, a friend to to those of us on the left. I think he's an opportunist and a charlatan, but um, I. 
he is somewhat correct about Keir Starmer, in my opinion. Um, I, I think that uh, Keir Starmer has, has failed to, um, as Callum pointed out, to to follow through on the promises and the platform on, on which he was elected. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I don't think the Batley and Spen election should be um, celebrated as, as some kind of victory because I think it was it was something that happened on the on the skin of its teeth, really. Um, and you saw the Labour the vote share in that constituency decline pretty drastically, and it, it should be quite alarming and definitely a wake a wake up call, as we've said. Um, as to whether and how much it was to do with Keir Starmer, um, as Callum rightly pointed out, um, you know Labour branding and and Keir Starmer's name and face um, was almost completely absent towards the the end of. Um, Kim Ledbetter's campaign in Batley and Spen. And I think that's a complete contrast to what we saw uh, in Hartlepool. And I'm not trying to compare the two constituencies because demographically they're very different. But, um, you know, it was a different a different tactic almost, wasn't it? And in, Hartley, in Hartlepool, there was, um, there was a lot of celebration about Keir Starmer and, and his face and, you know, this really uh, professional, competent figure in a suit, you know, much more confident than than his predecessor, and that completely failed in Hartlepool. Um, so the fact that it's been successful, albeit very in a very limited way, I think um, I think that does have something to say about Keir Starmer and about the Labour Party. In recent polling, um, you know, the, the country is is confused about what Labour stands for, um, and. In my opinion, I think Kim Kim Ledisa was very lucky, although she was in a very difficult position, um, because even she um, couldn't give a very good answer to that question, which isn't completely her fault. But she was also, um, I think, in one interview, she was she said, um, you know, vote for me, and then then I'll almost decide what our policies are later, which I really don't agree with either. So yeah, there's a lot of factors to consider, but I think it does raise some serious questions for Kirstarmer really. Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, a number of us now have identified that that key element in in this Labour slim victory was uh, Kim and her local um, her local knowledge, the the local factor of of her candidacy, and the fact that she the local people were willing to put their trust in somebody that knew the area. And I think that yes, there's some holes that we've pointed out in the fact that I, I remember that when that blew up about that she said well we'll come up with some some local policies later uh, just vote for me because i'm local uh, that's problematic but that's uh, that's a problem that we've got throughout the labor party at the moment really that we at times it seems like we haven't got a plan we haven't got any policies certainly on a national level i know local councillors and local activists have got lots of great ideas and lots of great uh, visions for the future but at the top it seems to be lacking so much bradley yeah, um, I, I, I must admit, I, I have found it slightly bizarre that many quarters have tried to paint this as some sort of victory for Starmer. I think, one, because, as, as I think both Callie, Callum and Ollie have pointed out, um, if anything, this was a local victory um, for, for Kim. Um, and, and, you know, very much a local campaign was run, uh, very strong roots in the local area. Um, 
So I, I think the, the idea that the victory has really anything to do with style at all is is is, is not true. But but also I, I think it's it's strange to paint this result as a victory. Really, it's the worst result Labour has ever had in the history of the constituency. We've lost seven and a half percent of the vote, um, and all of this is in the context in which it's a by-election where, as we all know very well now, governing parties are supposed to do really badly, um, but we lost a, a much larger vote share than, than the Tories did. So the idea that this is it, just because we just about clung onto the seat, that this is somehow you know a, a good electoral result and, and therefore Starmer is OK now, I, I find just bizarre, really. Um, you know, this this is still very much uh, this is a strong warning signal to the Labour Party that the current trajectory is, is not good. Um, if you add to it the Hartlepool result, if you look at the local election results, um, it's painting a very very bleak electoral future for the party if we continue on the current trajectory. And um, in terms of whether the party is actually aware of these warning signals and is paying attention to them at, at, at the national level, I'm I'm not entirely convinced. We've already talked about some of the comments um, about the Muslim community, and, yeah, and just to clarify, you know, if you if you were going to say um, that that uh, if you're going to suggest that anti-LGBT sentiment is was a, 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 in some way a electorally significant factor um, in in, a, in an election result um, be, because of anti-LGBT sentiment amongst a, a specific community of people of voters. Yeah, you, you've got to have some really good evidence to back that up. A lot of the stuff I've read and, I, and I've listened to about the election suggests that there's much more evidence that uh, you know pa- issues around Palestine, around Kashmir, um, and obviously we, we all know the issues with, with Labour's image and, and Starmer's image in general, with, you know, lack of vision and, and all that sort of stuff. There's, there seems to be that that those are the things that are being highlighted in a lot of things I'm reading and, and that I'm listening to about the, the election. Um, so if you're if you're going to say that anti-LGBT sentiment also played an electorally significant role in that, you've got to have really really good evidence to back that up with. Otherwise, I think you know jumping to that conclusion and accepting that as as part of what's happened, I I, I, I can't see how we can call it anything else other than racist. And it, could, could you imagine if there was a constituency in which there was a significant Jewish vote, and um, we had almost lost that seat um, under Corbyn, and Corbyn supporters had turned around and said something along the lines of what's being said um, about the Muslim community in Bailey and Sven. It, it, it would be a, a national scandal, and rightly so. Um, so I think in terms of whether the Labour Party is, is going to look at this result, realise how close we came and what the warning signals are and what the solutions to that are, um, at the moment I am sceptical. And that's something um, as as members and as activists, we've got to be saying loud and proud. And as Labour supporters, we've got to be saying we've got to get our act together. There's bound to be another by-election um, in in the next year or so. Certainly before the next general election, there's bound to be a number, um, and and potentially it could be a close seat. Certainly, if if you're following some of the news around some Tory MPs also in West Yorkshire, um, so we're going to have to keep an eye on that. Because actually at the next uh, by-election, the question is, what does Labour do? Does Labour do the Hartlepool-style campaign, portray Keir as the uh, competent leader in a suit, um, the, the, the QC with a plan? Or do we go back to local um, communities, local activists, and do we say, I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to listen to them. They know the issues in their area. They know the issues 
in their city, their town, their constituency. Let's get a local candidate that they've selected and they have the confidence to stand up for local people. And that's how we win. Uh, that's how we win by-elections. And that's how we drive policy across the country. But there doesn't seem to be any sort of um, process at the moment, nor is there any sort of policy direction beyond one thing. And that is, let's get the country reopened for the 19th of July, which is rapidly approaching. But as we... Uh, uh, rapidly seeing the uh, numbers of new COVID-19 cases are going through the roof. Um, on Friday, uh, Friday the 9th of July, cases uh, were reported to be 35,707. That's new cases of COVID-19. We're at levels that we haven't seen in a long time. I think the highest numbers that we've seen since earlier this year, certainly January, I think uh, some of the numbers are being reported, which is unacceptable. We're meant to be reopening, and we've obviously had this warning that the uh, that the numbers will spike. The numbers have spiked, and they are continuing to rise. Even the weekend numbers are in the uh, in the early thirty thousands, and normally they tend to be significantly lower. So. The NHS already is starting to work into overdrive as these cases are being reported. Now, this does come with the caveat that the Delta variant seems to be hospitalising less people. Um, a significantly lower number of people are dying. A significantly lower number of people are being hospitalised because of this variant. But if the numbers continue to rise, as will the numbers of people needing treatment on the NHS. So... When the government says after the um, 19th, the numbers will go up and the numbers that we can comfortably reach is 100,000 people, is this acceptable? And is the NHS going to survive this? Because they seem very confident that it will do. But if you remember, we were at that sort of level um, only a few months ago, early um, late last year and, and during the real peak and we experienced serious pressure on the NHS that warranted a full lockdown. So if we're going to be at those numbers again, albeit less people putting pressure on the NHS, we're still going to see a lot of people need to isolate, a lot of people need treatment, a lot of people need respirators. And unfortunately, a lot of people were going to need um, a funeral because this is what the government's doing. They're risking lives. Callum. I think, um, I think it's worth bearing in mind that the NHS last year was overwhelmed. It was overwhelmed. The government didn't prevent that. Um, there were many, many people who had to be denied treatment. And there were doctors who were making decisions about who lives and who dies. And there is going to be, uh, and, and, and other medical staff as well, uh, and there is going to be, uh, I think, a huge PTSD crisis in the years to come um, amongst those health staff who works during that period. Uh, the, the, the medical experts now are saying that um, most people who have been jabbed 
are probably not going to be hospitalized. I think it's something like you've got a 94, 96% chance of avoiding hospitalization if you get COVID-19. Um, what is also clear, of course, is that uh, just because you have had the jab doesn't mean you won't catch it. And therefore, if you catch it, you can still pass it on to other people. Um, and that's something we've been sort of speculating on for a while, whether uh, this these vaccines prevent transmission as well as hospitalizations. Um whether and I don't think we know definitively whether it's just because of the Delta variant or uh, something that was inherent to the virus to begin with, um, but we do know that for sure now. Just because you've been vaccinated uh, doesn't mean you can't pass it on. Um, at some point, the country obviously does have to uh, open up. Um, the curious contradiction that um, Boris Johnson has created is that he stood up and said, well, we can either open up now during the summer um, when the weather is better and therefore the virus is at a disadvantage in warmer weather, um, or we can wait until the winter and open up then. And that's uh, that's when we'll have an outbreak. Um, and if you just say that to someone, say that to someone, they might well, well, sort of nod their head and go, "Oh, yes, of course." But, but that's just such a weird contradiction. If you if you even think about it for for more than sort of ten seconds, because, I mean, it's it's saying that essentially the situation in two three months' time when we're back in the winter months will be exactly the same as it, as, it, as it is now. And it will be completely different in a couple of months' time because the vaccine program will have been completed. The vaccine, or, or the virus rather, will have spent, uh, will have had fewer opportunities to gather and to grow. Um, although, to be fair, under the current regulations, really, there's not very much stopping it from being transmitted at the moment um in terms of daily life i think probably the only two differences that most people will be aware of is that you still have to wear masks indoors unless you're in um some form of entertainment venue uh, like a pub um you still have to wear masks in supermarkets and so on which i think is absolutely correct most people agree with that as well um and, of course, the nightclubs aren't yet open, or, of course, under the current plans, they will be next week. So it is a tremendous risk that the, that the government is taking, and it seems, it seems to be that they are consciously and deliberately aware that what they are doing is going to spread the infection further um, and that more people will die as a consequence. But they have calculated that those numbers are uh, manageable, uh, and acceptable, and therefore they're going to go ahead of it anyway, uh, as they always do in the interests of uh, boosting the economy. Um, wh- whether they get away with it, I, I suspect they will, but it's just one more crime to add to the nearly two years or the, the year and a half of, uh, frankly, criminal activity uh, and conduct that the government has 
inflicted upon the nation over that period of time. Absolutely. And I suppose you're right to identify that the, the government here obviously doesn't really care about people's lives as long as they can make it bearable. As long as the situation is bearable for people, then they're willing to, to risk lives and obviously risk tearing apart families and ruining people's lives all in the name of the economy. And, and we have to recognise on, on the other hand, though, that the economy does have to reopen at some point. But this, to me, this this floodgates approach now is 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 dangerous. The, the numbers we're seeing are uh, are far too uh, far too high to take the risk of opening everything up. I think um, the government should stop making big promises to people and start looking at the cold hard facts. And start by doing a more, um, obviously we've had the, the stages approach, but getting this last stage over the line has been particularly problematic because it's such a big step. This could have been broken up into two or three more steps, slowly opening up the economy, slowly opening up social interactions, reducing the, the need for PPE and things like that uh, as a mandatory thing. Um, Ollie. Yeah, I actually think um, what's going to happen in, in eight days is is the the largest uh, public health social experiment that's ever ever happened. Really, I think it's extremely risky and unnecessarily so, as you pointed out. Um, <clears throat> many people, I mean myself, I'm, I'm very lucky as I work from home. But you know, this the lockdown that we had up until now, especially the past um, month or so, hasn't really been in lockdown in many ways yes there's been um socially distanced uh, measures and you have to wear masks and and stuff like that and wash your hands but you know it's been incredibly um freeing compared to some of the earlier lockdowns that, that we had as a country um and yeah as you say to, to open it up like as just a, a whole broad uh, floodgate measure at this time is just it it doesn't make sense it, and i think you know, they're under increasing pressure now to justify it. Um, I'm actually sceptical whether it will go ahead, although there is an immense pressure from, from the Tory backbenchers who, who want the country just fully unlocked and to, to regain freedom, as they say. Well, it, it's just, it's not going to be freeing for for the people, uh, for the thousands of people that, that are going to suffer from long COVID. But Boris Johnson himself and any gov- government ministers that have caught um, COVID as, as far as I'm aware, haven't suffered from severe long COVID, which is what thousands of people are suffering from now. And, you know, I just wonder how different it would be if, if Boris Johnson himself had been one of the ones, not, not that I wish it upon him, but I think it would have major implications on, on our public health policy at the moment. You know, I was reading accounts earlier of children who, who you know, they take one trip outside having caught COVID um, and suffer from long COVID and they have to spend you know the next two days in bed and it's just completely taken away their childhood they can't manage to go to school for for a week and this you know five to nine nine percent of children are affected by by COVID uh, by long COVID and if you scale up the cases in this way where there's hundreds of thousands of, of cases a day I just think it's gonna severely um you know, destroy people's lives, people's lives and, and children's lives. And that is just, I don't think, um, I don't think that's, 
that's viable. I really don't. Um, it's incredibly scary, and I think there's a lot of uncertainty about it. Um, but we'll see whether it goes ahead, I guess. Yeah, and I, I have a, a big fear that I think it's just going to go ahead. They're going to plough on with it now. They've they've made their promises, um, and I think that actually it's a sign of, of their, their weakness that they need to always be playing to the crowd um, with these big promises and then having to follow through with them. And they feel like they're backed into a corner, but they shouldn't be. They've got, they're armed with some of the best scientific advisors, some of the best data in the world. We've got one of the uh, fastest moving vaccine rollouts. You know, we've got a lot going for us, but actually they, they don't seem to recognise that. And it's all about this one promise of Freedom Day um, and, and the, the, the real sort of optical illusion around that. Um, despite the fact that this Freedom Day, as, as Ollie rightly says, could end up confining many people to the effects of long COVID and killing a lot of people as well. So it's not very uh, liberating for people who face that situation. Bradley, you want to come in? Yeah, I, th- I mean, everyone that's spoken so far has r- raised a lot of concerns about the government's current plans, uh, concerns that I definitely share. I suppose my question is, to any of you that want to answer, what do you think the restrictions should be and how long should they stay in place? What, what, I suppose what I'm asking is, what, what, would you do, what do you think the government should be doing differently? Well, I've, I've highlighted the, um, the approach I want to see, which is a far more staggered approach for this final step. Um, I don't think it's necessary that football club, um, yeah, well, football stadiums should not be full. Um, nightclubs should not be, uh, should not be opening as soon as they are, certainly in a full capacity, as it seems to be. The, the stoppers are off after the 19th the cork is out the bottle so when um, so until well, then when do, what do you think the point where how do we decide well, at what point we do i think i think it should be once that the the vaccination program has started to reach the point where we're now administering boosters and that will be august september time so it's not a huge amount of time to wait already the pubs are open already the shops are open yeah. i think that that's that's already um it hasn't really hindered my life um you know i've managed to in that situation i've managed to catch covid you know and i've been suffering with that and that's you know and that's a meant to be quite a limited environment where you're wearing face masks where it's still socially distanced where you're getting table service i feel that actually we can wait in that sort of position of of uh, holding back for just a few weeks more couple of months you know slowly introduce things not take everything off certainly the government are saying that when schools do go back everything's going to be um ppe less everything's going to be back to normal things like that we need to have a, a summer where we're preparing to have the environment where it's going to be as covid free as possible because otherwise that's not going to work we're going to be in the middle of another spike and children's education is going to be impacted businesses are going to be impacted and then we'll be back to a situation where we're going around in circles we need to we need to get it we need to stop it now and we need to have a the vaccination pro um yeah the process of the vaccination program fully complete this first cycle of 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 um, the first and second jabs before we even think about um, the boosters that the that the government's talking about. Callum, what's your uh, what's your take on this? Yeah, I was agree with basically all of that. Um, I think the key point is when the 
uh, when everyone has at, le- has at least one jab. Um, I mean, we're now down to people in their 20s, so it's not too far away. I've had, I've had my first one. My next one's on the uh, 30th of August. Um, so, isn't the point of the 19th? Because mm-hmm. the, it was the original lock was supposed to be yeah. the 21st. The, the reason they, of June, wasn't it? And the reason they delayed it to the 19th um, was for exactly that reason. They said that everyone should have had at least one jab by then. Aren't we almost basically there? I don't know anyone that's not had a jab, at least one jab now. Well, I think I think. Well, we're not quite there yet. That's 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 the point. I mean, I pro- like I say, I'd probably delay it until the until the vaccine rollout is complete. So and, d- yeah, double jab then. Yeah. Yeah, maybe double jab then. In that case, I mean, we're not we're not immunologists, and maybe the government's right. Maybe we're probably not going to see uh, a huge number of infections and deaths and so on. But you know, why? I think the the question is what? Why take the risk? That's the that's that's the key thing. We've been living like this for uh, so long now. You know what is an extra month or so to prevent extra harm from 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 happening? So I I I would agree with that. I I think it makes a lot of sense. I I think the problem all the way throughout is it's not always been crystal clear what the criteria are, um, or if there are criteria, they've always been you know maybe not the best. I I think saying from the outset we will lift all restrictions at the point at which the entire adult population is double jabbed. Or, or, or very close to the entire population is, is double jab. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think if that had been said from the outset, I think people could have understood that and got behind that. The, the problem is that the government has set these dates, and and they have, and you know, they, they've they've introduced lockdowns, brought us slowly out of them, then had to reintroduce them. They they set freedom the freedom day. They had to roll that back a little bit. So I think I think that approach has made the public very wet very weary of of restrictions because it there's always you know it's always not been quite clear and sometimes the rationale for the restrictions it's not always been fully clear when they might be lifted again and we've had to go roll back on things and go back into lockdowns so i think if there'd been a a clearer approach to to when restrictions will be lifted and exactly what the criteria are such as both of you have just outlined there of we will wait until the most of the adult population is double jabbed, and then we will lift restrictions. That that to me would make more sense and probably been better accepted by the public. I I, I ask this because I what well, I don't hear people talk about very often, but I, I I'm fed up. I'm re- I'm really 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 fed up of restrictions, and um, I I I've said this before. I don't think we should undersell the sacrifices people have made over the last eighteen months. Um, it, 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 it's almost normal, you know, it's normal now to not be able to do certain things. Um, but but I, I, it shouldn't be normal. It, it shouldn't feel normal and acceptable to not be able to, to do normal activities with people. Um, so I, and I, I do think there's a limit to how long, much longer people will accept those restrictions for. Um, so I think the government's really got to get it right in the point at which it releases them but also how it communicates that to people so so what i'm trying to say is i i would support a further extension of of restrictions and um, because you've both made a really clear case that you know the risk is again significantly reduced if we make sure 
almost all of the adult population, it's never going to be all of them, but you know, almost all of the adult population are double jabbed. Um, but, but yeah, and so I could accept an extension of, a, of another few weeks, couple of months, if, if that was very made, made really clear that, that was the criteria under which we would come out of lockdown. Um, but of course, the problem is, is the government aren't doing that. They've set this date and, that, and, that, and they're just cracking on with that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't. I don't think we should undersell restrictions. Like, I, even though there are lots of things we can do now, uh, I, I, I find it. You know, my anxiety really struggles being out um, at the moment. You know, constantly worrying about what what they touch. Do I need to go wash my hands? I've got to constantly like fill in with my mask to make sure it's on properly. And I know, and I know, you know, I don't mean to say that, you know that me not having that problem is worth people dying. Obviously, it's not. But what I'm saying is. Yeah, if we can save lives, we should save lives. But what I'm saying is, we shouldn't underestimate the impact of further restrictions. And I, I don't want us to get to a point where we just accept that we have restrictions on our lives now. I, I think, yeah, it, I think this is probably one of the most difficult points of the pandemic. I think earlier on, it was really clear we needed to go to to really strict lockdowns to save lives because it was going to be absolutely catastrophic if we didn't. I mean, it, the moral choices were really, really clear throughout most of the pandemic. I think we're now getting to a point where it's more difficult to make those decisions. Um, but I, I do think the double jab criteria makes sense. And I would be happy to wait another month or two months if, if that's to get us to that point. Yeah. And I think that's that's the big issue is the communication from the government has been woeful. You know, it, it's the issue with focusing on Freedom Day and not on the the facts, not on the, the science means that actually that most people are fed up most people are fed up with the restrictions they just want to get back to normality and we're so close to it we are we're incredibly close to it it's within touching distance now but it's just got to be i think just a measured way of doing it instead of opening the floodgates without everybody at least getting their first jab if not their second in an ideal world but it remains to be seen um whether we'll reach that um, so from that, the, one of the people that have that big decision was Matt Hancock, who was, uh, very much committed along with the government line to the, uh, freedom day, the reopening of the country as, as again, as we like to be told that this, uh, July the 19th is going to be, but he has in the midst of a scandal, he's had to resign after, um, having a, a relationship with a, uh, a political advisor in his office, uh, which was caught on CCTV and broadcast, uh, uh, put on the internet by the sun and splashed all over the front pages of a number of newspapers. Um, he resigned uh, in shame. He, he resigned um, to spend more time with his children uh, is his official line. Um, but that meant that Sajid Javid, has been brought back into the fold. He is the new health secretary. Um, and I wanted to spend five minutes or so just having a discussion about um, what does Savjid Javid mean for the uh, NHS, for social care? What does he mean for the uh, future of healthcare in this country going forward, given his um, somewhat questionable relationship with um, some of the big uh, pharma companies and the uh, and the companies that finance those uh, those groups and certainly their interest in potentially privatising the NHS. Uh, Ollie, 
Yeah, it's almost like we've got another chancellor, isn't it? Really, um, this is someone who um, has has worked in banking, is my understanding, for uh, I think around twenty years, and he's been very involved um, with some quite controversial U.S. banks. I think such as J.P. Morgan, who invest heavily in uh, fossil fuels, and more importantly, to his position now as health secretary, they are very involved um, in in private healthcare. Um, which is is concerning to say the least, because you know it's quite it's it's quite suspicious in, in my opinion uh, this appointment at this time. Obviously, they need someone uh, very competent uh, to follow on from from Matt Hancock, and you know he's got different views on how uh, to handle the pandemic. Arguably, putting the economy over. Um, over the caution over over the pandemic and restrictions um so yeah i think it has a lot of implications actually for the future of the nhs um the nhs itself uh, was on its knees even before the the pandemic hit after a decade of austerity and budget cuts and all sorts um and it's just been treated with utter contempt by the, the tories it's quite clear that their plan is to um, sell it off, you know, with, with the health bill that was uh, just put in Parliament just last week. Um, it's quite clear what their plan is for that, you know, make it look like it's failing, it's not doing a very good job, it would be far more uh, sustainable and far better in the long run if it was privatised. And I think that's where Sajid Javid comes in, you know, with all his connections to the uh, the health, the private healthcare world, especially in America, and you know it's been happening for years, selling off various parts of NHS infrastructure, and I think it's only going to accelerate now, and it's going to make privatization look a lot more viable, um, and I think that's going to be their their narrative completely, to be honest. Absolutely, and this is this backdoor privatization. They're never actually going to admit to it because ultimately it is our nhs and it's it belongs to the people of this country and they they're uh, well they, they clearly don't want to stand by their principles they want to sneak in this privatization they want to sneak in bits being sold off here and there you know just one little bit of catering just uh patient transport we'll we'll flog that off next and before you know it the the whole of the nhs will be gone um and this is what we need to be aware of because it's uh, death by a, a thousand cuts um it's not just one big swoop of a sword we need to be aware of that as as uh, people that oppose this wholeheartedly bradley what's your take on uh, the appointment of mr javid yeah i mean i must confess I, i'm not a, an expert on on his politics but certainly from from what i've read and heard over the last few weeks it certainly seems like he is is going to be a lot more gung-ho about you know lifting of restrictions and things and obviously I've just expressed a desire for us to eventually get past restrictions but what you know as we've just discussed when we if we what we want is a really clear set of criteria that is is you know a sensible and rational reason to 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 lift restrictions and a a clear you know clear purpose for for what we're doing at each step and I'm not entirely confident that that that's what we're going to get from the government now, um, particularly with the new health secretary. I think we, we're just seeing a, a really a real push to, to lift restrictions as quickly as possible now. Um, I mean, fair enough that you know they did they have delayed that um, until the nineteenth when it was going to be the twenty first. 
Um, but I think you're getting a real sense now from from Sajid Javid that it, the government just wants to get past restrictions now, and and and, that, and they've set their sights on that, and that's what's going to happen. Um, whereas, you know, even, even for me, that you know, someone that is is, is really wary, weary of, of restrictions, I, I still want us to, if we're coming out of them, I want I want that to be a, a really good and informed and rational reason why we're doing so. Um, and I'm, I'm not entirely convinced by the rhetoric um, from Sajid Javid so far that that, that that we are following like a really informed and rational scientific process. And uh, Callum, what's your take on this? There's not much more I can add. Really, is there? He's an arch neoliberal, um, you know, the, the, almost one of the high priests. And to have him in charge of the NHS is extremely scary indeed, even without uh, the present crisis uh, also happening uh, under his watch. Um, I think the timing was quite interesting as well. Um, The Tories, I think that they often like to try and, much like they did with Theresa May, try and keep them in place uh, when they can see they're failing so that they can... Uh, take all of the flack for that poor decision that they've made, um, which I think is what they've done with Mike uh, Mike Hancock and then given him the boot at the last minute so that Sajid Javid, who is a more true ally of Boris Johnson, uh, can take the credit for the country opening up. Um, I suspect that's what's happened here. Probably won't ever know. It might come out in someone's memoirs. Um, But if that's what's happening, God, what does it say about the, the... the, the janky and um, thick of it style government that we, we seem to have these days. Yeah, Bradley, you just wanted to come in there? Yeah, you kind of stolen it from my mouth, a, a very thick of it-esque. Um, I, I do think there's probably a really interesting backstory to the whole Matt Hancock saga. Um, uh, you know, the, if you look at, some of the, you know, did, did he not realise there was a security camera there? How did that footage get out to, to the press? Well, I think there's probably a really interesting backstory there um, that that sadly maybe we'll never know what what happened there. Um, but 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 also you know it, it is frustrating that the, as, as many commentators have said, it's frustrating that that was the thing that toppled Hancock. Um, what what is you know it is essentially a, a private affair. There, there are some questions around the, the hiring and and. And whether whether there was an element of, of cronyism or, or corruption there, I think that there's maybe some questions to be asked around that. Um, given you know how long had that relationship been going on? Um, was it going on at the time of her appointment? There's questions there that are outstanding, maybe. But essentially, you know, the scandal element of it really was a private affair. Um, it, it's frustrating that that's the thing that, that's got rid of Matt Hancock when really it should have been his woeful mismanagement of, of the pandemic. Um, I don't think all of the blame can be laid at him either. Obviously, plenty in the in the government share responsibility for that. Um, but but yeah, and it, it, it's frustrating that that's the thing that stopped it. But I also think there's probably a really interesting backstory to all of it that we'll never know. Yeah, it's it's one of those that will probably remain in the uh, behind the scenes and behind closed doors. But it, it was very interesting at the timing of of that coming out and the. Uh, the, the whole circumstances around it. But as we know, with um, 
Javid coming in and the NHS under threat, we're going to need our trade unions to represent the uh, hardworking people in our NHS, fighting the corner for the nurses, the doctors, uh, all the way down to the catering team and the janitors. And the Unite uh, Union, one of the biggest in the country, is holding its uh, leadership elections. Um, the ballots have dropped this week and uh, Callum Watt has got more on this story for us. Yeah, so obviously in the early days of this uh, election, we had uh, primarily three candidates of the left. Um, Howard Beckett, who is uh, who had some very radical ideas like uh, having Unite TV um, and just sort of very briefly, you have Steve Turner, who's uh, currently Len McCluskey, the incumbent Unite uh, General Secretary's uh, assistant, who Len McCluskey, of course, himself, uh, 10, 15 years ago when he became uh, General Secretary, was part of the Awkward Squad, so uh, a group of General Secretaries moving the Trade Union Congress to the left somewhat. Um, so he's the continuity candidate, if you like. Uh, then you have Sharon Graham, who uh, is... Uh, she describes herself as a syndicalist, so wants to see Unite move a bit away from being so actively involved in national politics and, and more towards uh, organising at, at the grassroots, uh, it, but in a radical way. Um, and you might call that the sort of more anarchist approach in a, in a way. Uh, then you've got uh, Gerard Coyne, who is the Blairite candidate, essentially the right winger. Um, perhaps a little unfair to say Blairite. I think he's more of a sort of mid twentieth century style um, old right uh, trade unionist, um, who uh, who some people are backing in the Labour movement because. Uh, they see him as a more solid supporter of the Labour Party. But it's a little bit uh, slight misrepresentation because uh, Steve Turner, uh, unlike Howard Beckett, Howard Beckett was saying, um, was threatening to pull money away from the Labour Party completely uh, if it didn't um, go in the direction that he thought Steve Turner is committed to the Labour Party and to making it better and, so, and investing in it, essentially. Um in the nomination process, the, uh, the I think, to be honest, I was quite surprised by how, how it went because Howard Beckett, on social media at least, was just ubiquitous. He didn't see very much for the other candidates at all, although it was notable that in my own local branch, the officers were backing Steve Turner and that seemed to be a pattern that uh, people who were connected with the structures of, of Unite, people who were officers, delegates to various things, uh, to regional organisations and so on, tended to back Steve Turner because he had a, has a good reputation for organising branches and so on. Um, and they were backing him, whereas people, sort of lay members, if you like, like myself, tended to be uh, more in favour of Beckett. Uh, the interesting thing is that when the nominations finally came out, Steve Turner was way ahead of the others, uh, really, really way ahead. Then it's uh, uh, then I think it was Jared Coyne, um, and then Howard Beckett, and finally Sharon Graham. Uh, 
Uh, oh no, sorry, it was the other way around. Sorry, um, Steve Turner came out first. The first Sharon Graham, Steve Turner, and then Jared Coyne. But despite getting the fewest number of nominations, Jared Coyne is actually broadly considered the most likely to win. And we can see an echo of this couple of months ago when Unison had a similar election. They had uh, several candidates to the left. Uh, then eventually they had two primary candidates. One was backed by Jeremy Corbyn. The other one was backed by John McDonnell. And that results in the left vote splitting and the uh, right-wing candidate who rather controversially was actually endorsed by the National Executive Committee of Unison, um, which I just can't imagine happening in the Labour Party. Um, Christine McKenna uh, won and is currently the Unison General Secretary. Now, in Unison, they've sort of got their act together a little bit and they're running a a joint slate for uh, the uh, NEC elections. But obviously the big position, the general secretary, is now gone. And we risk seeing that happen in Unite, that uh, Unite, which is uh, the bastion of the left uh, within the Labour Party, or or really you might call it the left sugar daddy in a way, because it it backs left candidates, broadly speaking, um, in in local selections um, and in local elections and so on. and if uh, it falls to, um, a set, uh, to to the right, then that would have serious negative consequences for the party because something to bear in mind is that the trade unions have 50% of the votes at conference. They also have significant reputation, um, representation on uh, the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party, huge, huge influence, unites one of its biggest financial backers. Um, so there's a possibility that the rules could be changed to make it harder to elect a left-wing leader of the Labour Party. Um, the, um, part of the right strategy in Westminster at the moment, um, even though they consider apparently um, Keir Starmer to be a dud, um, they want to keep him in place long enough so that they can change the rules so that the party membership can't elect someone who represents their values anymore. Um, and if Unite is run by a right winger, that makes it a lot easier for them to do that. So uh, fortunately, Howard Beckett did the sensible thing. Um, he got a few concessions and he backed out of the race in favour of Steve Turner. Which I think was always going to happen anyway. I think that I understand there was a, a sort of agreement between the two beforehand. Uh, Sharon Graham, who has a wildly different politics, uh, has refused to do so. Um, there is an element there of you know the optics, I suppose, of a woman backing down from a male candidate in 2021, um, which I do understand, of course, um, but it does put at risk. Uh, obviously, as I say, the uh, Unite and possibly therefore the Labour Party for win wholesale to the right. Um, and really, the depressing thing about it is that this shouldn't be a problem. Um, I can't honestly believe that in the 2020s, um, a modern trade union like Unite is still running an election using first past the post. Um, it makes no sense. And while in many respects I'm an admirer of Lem McCluskey, um, I think this is probably the worst part of his legacy, that in more than a decade in charge of Unite, 
um, he's failed to set in place uh, election rules which are moral, by the way, because it's just morally better to have a preferential voting system, um, but also you know, strategically as well. Um, the fact that he has failed to do that might result in catastrophic political consequences for the Labour movement, uh, for the Labour Party and for British politics in general. So it is an extremely important um, important election. If you are a Unite member, please do, I would say, and I'll be partisan completely, please do vote for Steve Turner. Uh, and once the selection, uh, once the election is over, uh, put forward your branches, uh, rule changes to uh, reform the rules so that something like this cannot happen again. Great stuff. And I think that is a story that we need to be keeping an eye on going forward. The uh, the polls obviously are open. If you are a Unite member in any of the branches, uh, you would have hopefully received your uh, your uh, ballot paper that would have come through the post. Um, I think I've received mine. Uh, Callum should have received his. I don't know a number of other people that are members of, of Unite have received their ballots and it's a uh, it's a hot topic in the trade union world it's uh, something that we certainly people members of the labor party sometimes forget how important the uh, direction of the trade union movement is in in how the party politics plays out um certainly in these big unions such as unite so uh, it's one to keep an eye on and uh, just as a, a quick Prediction, Callum, do you think that the uh, left vote will consolidate around Turner or is it too close to call, do you think? I think it's far too close to call. Bear in mind that um, Lem McCluskey only won narrowly in the last election and there was a left-wing splitter uh, candidate in, in that case, um, but he was far less prominent. And there was a very, very big campaign from Momentum and other such organisations <clears throat> to back Len McCluskey. Obviously, Len McCluskey was also the incumbent. So he had lots of advantages, uh, and yet he only just scraped through. So it's, it's, it's extremely, extremely dangerous, the position that we find mm. ourselves in presently. Um, so I, I think it's going to be tight, and therefore everyone who has a vote should use it. Absolutely. And I think that's a good way to finish the uh, podcast. If you have a vote in this election or any election in any of your trade unions or in your party, make sure you use them. Because as it turns out, the finest of margins can make the biggest of differences. So it's a goodbye from me, uh, Callum Roper. It's a goodbye from Ollie Walwyn. Goodbye, everyone. Take care. It's a goodbye from Bradley Allsop. See you, folks. Stay safe. And it's a goodbye from Callum Watt. Goodbye. Please join the union and stay safe. Absolutely. And with that, we will see you next time.